after a weekend like this, probably most of us would ask, um, what benefit or what is the result or what can we actually take from this retreat and use in our life usefully? The format of a retreat like this is very specific. The silence, the alternate hours of sitting and walking and the staying within and being with oneself is not the way we live in our daily life. So what can we take from here besides memories? I want to speak a little bit about mindfulness in daily life or practicing in daily life in three areas. I want to talk about the understanding or the wisdom that we have begun to cultivate here. I want to talk about attitudes of mind that this practice can um, cultivate or enhance or bring out in your life. And I want to talk about specific behavior and actions that we can do to increase our awareness and uh, mindfulness in our daily life. First, the uh, wisdom or the understanding that we get here. Over the course of just these two days, I have talked uh, quite a lot in uh, giving some talks and, and answering questions and giving instructions and, and some uh, guidance as to how to understand your experience, how to reframe your experience so that um, you can begin to see the path towards freeing the mind from its habits, from its uh, self-imposed limitations. And this understanding and this talk and these this, uh, answers to questions is all very good and very useful. And a lot of this information can be found in books or can be gotten from other teachers or uh, is available on tapes and uh, from many different sources. And it's not insignificant. It's quite necessary to begin to uh, see our life in terms of the potential we have to awaken and to transform our life from whatever conditions we now find are uh, burdensome and uh, uh, cause us unhappiness and begin to transform our life to uh, conditions or with conditions uh, to a life that is a little more open, a little less burdensome and maybe a little more free and conducing to more happiness for ourselves and others. This information is useful, necessary, helpful, but it's not enough. Another area of knowledge or understanding or wisdom that we get, even in a short retreat like this, is from our personal experience here. And that is just sitting and being with your own mind in your own body in a less distracted way and beginning to pay attention to what's actually going on in the mind and the body.
a lot of what happens here seems totally insignificant. Watching the breath, can't find it. Sleepiness, dullness, uh, totally lost and spaced out most of the time. So what? We don't even know most of what we've done here. Haven't really been awake for most of the time. However, even though we cannot put it into words, may not be able to say exactly what we experienced, still, we have begun to get uh, deep and profound intuitive understanding of what the nature of the mind and the body really is. And that level of knowledge, that level of experience, is in the body. And you know it. You know it in a way that nobody can take it away. Nobody can convince you otherwise. And it's a beginning of getting in touch with the truth. And when you listen to other teachers, and when you read other books, and when you talk to other people, and they try to tell you what the truth is, if it doesn't resonate with your experience here this weekend, you can't believe it. You won't believe it. You begin to recognize the truth in yourself and in others. That experience, or that knowledge, or that wisdom, that understanding that you have of yourself from this experience, cannot be found in any book, cannot be gotten from any teacher, cannot be bought or traded or battered, and you can't find it anywhere but within yourself. And so just that amount of time of being with yourself and understanding your own experience is invaluable. And what we see, or the knowledge that we have gotten the understanding of the wisdom that we have gotten from our experience is not just how many times we breathe in a minute. It's not just which muscles are working when we take a left step. But it's much more profound and much more simple than that. Because even unbeknownst to us, we have seen and uh, seen deeply into the fact that every experience we have is only a fleeting, momentary occurrence. That means that everything is changing. Everything is changing. And we have seen that, we have felt that, we know that at some deep level that we might not even be able to acknowledge and to put into words. But the implications of that wisdom is profound. How can we ever now expect some state of mind, some state of happiness, some state of uh, contentment, or some state of anger, some state of fear, or some state of suffering to last forever? We can get off the treadmill. We don't have to look for perfect happiness anymore. We know it's not possible. We also don't have to suffer with our view of ourself of being an angry person or a ashamed person or an inferior person because 
that condition also is impermanent. Thank goodness for impermanence. Let that knowledge, let that wisdom seep into your life and act accordingly from it. Give up the search for anything permanent. What a relief. What freedom we have. Not only the changeability of experience or the changing, fleeting nature of experience, but the very fact that most of our experience does not provide us any sense of completion, satisfaction, contentment, or being at ease. We spend most of our life looking for that feeling, looking for that experience of, I'm satisfied. I don't need any more. I'm full up, finished, complete. We read another book. We have another meal. We go to another movie. We get another lover. We earn a little more money. We have another kid. We do another retreat. We have another meditation experience. We get enlightened again. And we've had some good sittings, even. Where is that sense of satisfaction and completion and fulfillment and I have done what I need to do that we look for? Not there, is it? What is going to do it for you? Another book? Another retreat? Another good sitting? We have seen in our own experience here this weekend that there is no experience of the mind or the body that's going to give us that sense of satisfaction. Let the implications of that wisdom seep through your life. We can give up looking for satisfaction. Be free of that burden of trying to be satisfied and happy. What a relief that would be. What a sense of freedom and spaciousness. We could then go about our life and just live it as it is. Not having to impose some requirement that it's got to satisfy us. And not only the impermanence of events and the unsatisfactory nature of events and experience, but the very fact that our mind and our body is out of control. We can't control it. We can't make our body do what we want. We can't sit still for 45 minutes. We can't watch our breath. We can't make our mind know our breath three times in a row. Three times in a row. Ten seconds, maybe. Hard to follow the breath. What does that mean? What's the implications of understanding, seeing deeply into the very fact that we are a non-autonomous being? We don't have any control over ourselves, over our mind or our body. Thank goodness. Our experience is conditioned by others, by the weather, by the food we eat, by our past, by our memories, by our thoughts, by our plans, by our ignorance, by our inability to know what's actually happening. We continue on this blind search for something, somewhere. Fulfillment, myself, enlightenment, something. It's not under our control. We don't have control over our mind and body. Let go of that idea. 
let the implications of that sink into your life, influence and inform your decisions. How free can we be when we are free of our sense, our limited sense of who we are? We're not who we are. Let go of that and be free of that very limited view of yourself. Be everything that's possible. Why be stuck in this view of, I am victimized by, take your pick, my father, my mother, my society, the governor, the, pre- the president, my lack of money, my education, my body, being male, being female, being middle age. You're none of that. You can be free of all of that concept, that self-limiting idea of yourself, and be much greater than that, beyond any limit. We have begun to see that. We've begun to not. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just trying to put into words what you have actually discovered and felt and seen and known about yourself this weekend. And the more you practice, the more you get that realization, and the more that realization influences and informs your life, the freer you become. These insights, this knowledge we have of the impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature, and the non-autonomous nature of our experience of self, The whole path of practice can be seen as a deepening understanding and experience of life (coughs) as the unfolding of these factors. Seeing more deeply into our life as being impermanent, as being unsatisfactory, and as being out of our control. And the deeper we go into practice, the more we realize that that is so. Most of us say, my goodness, that's terrible. I don't want to experience that. I don't want to experience more unsatisfactoriness. My life is a mess already. I don't want to experience more change. I want things to get stable. I want to become more self-assured, more self-confident, a stronger sense of myself and know who I am. And yet this practice is going to take that all away. Be prepared. But it leads to freedom, seeing things the way they are. The truth will set you free. Accumulating a sense of self that gets really solid and fixed and permanent and never changes, and your own sense of this is going to make me happy and that's it, that's going to make you happy? That's going to set you free? Sorry, you've been sold a false bill of goods. Seeing deeply into the nature of reality, seeing the truth of this moment, that will set you free. So, why bother come here and sit and and, uh, sweat and swear and complain and bitch and moan about my body and my mind? Well, there was this wonderful book written some years ago called Mount Analog, and it's about these pilgrims, these spiritual pilgrims on search uh, for this spiritual mountain that can't be seen, can't be found called Mount Analog. Eventually they find it and uh, they take a walk and uh, they get some guides that guide them up it and uh, 
someone asked the very same question, why bother climbing this mountain? You cannot stay on the summit forever. You have to come down again. So why bother in the first place? Just this. What is above knows what is below. But what is below does not know what is above. One climbs and one sees. One descends and one sees no longer. But one has seen. There is an art of conducting oneself in the lower region by the memory of what one saw higher up. When one no longer sees, one can at least still know. In the insight and understanding you have of yourself from this experience is a view of reality that will inform your life. You may not stay with this experience of impermanence and satisfactoriness and uh, non-autonomy. Thank goodness we go back to our normal lives and we fit in again. Safe. But what we have seen is doing its work. It'll be there, influencing your life. This is the wisdom you take from a, a simple retreat like this. Profound. Not insignificant. A whole range of attitudes and uh, perspectives and understandings that I've been talking about and that you've had to cultivate and develop just to be here and to do this practice. I want to enumerate a few of them for you. The first is patience. Anybody discovered that they need patience to do this practice? Patience to wake up. Patience to actually come to know yourself. Invaluable. Nothing is accomplished without patience. Do you think flower buds are impatient when they want to open and be beautiful? Especially when there's, a, there's still a bud and the one next to them is already fully bloomed. Huh? <laughs> hey, I want to be like that one. It's not your time. Be patient. Bud and bloom and blossom in your own time. There was this old uh, Chinese hermit. I think it was back in 1300 something or other went to this uh, mountain to live. His name was Stonehouse. And he wrote some fantastic poetry. And one of them, uh, he used to be an abbot of a, um, a Buddhist monastery for five years. And then he said, wait a minute, this isn't what life's all about. I gotta get free of this uh, role and responsibility. Went to be a hermit on the mountain. Anyway, he says, you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wears through. It's not true thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine their minds are hard. People just imagine their minds are hard. Patient. Even without us recognizing it, something, some seed of wisdom and understanding has brought us here. And we didn't just plant that seed on Friday night. That seed was planted a long time ago. Maybe even lifetimes ago, if you were into believing about lifetimes. The seed that has brought you here, that, that search for that enlightenment, for that freedom, for that unburdened, for that ultimate letting go in peace, was planted in that mind sometime long ago and has been growing and has brought you here. Trust that that seed will continue to grow from here 
to wherever. The plant is not over. The blossom is not finished. It becomes really necessary in the course of practice to be patient, especially with pain and difficulty and disappointment. We have a lot of it. Other people have a lot of pain. We have to be patient with their pain too, their suffering. Because they, just like we, find it intolerable at times to bear their burden. And they get angry, and they get greedy, and they get nasty, just as we do. And we have to be patient with them. There's another little story here, really nice, about patience. Where is it? Patience and compassion, huh? A compassionate person, seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help very gently loosen the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon and fluttered about, but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom, never really lived. Don't be afraid to suffer. Don't be afraid when you see others suffering. It's the path of awakening. Patience, absolutely essential. Secondly, and I don't mean second in order of importance, but second in order of just talking, is a commitment to the truth. None of us here, if I said, are you a liar, would say, yeah, sure, I'm a liar. I lie all the time. But if I asked how many of us have taken a very determined and very conscious, made a very conscious commitment to the truth, eh, there might not be any of us that could do that either. A commitment to the truth is really essential. Uh, there is in our society rampant denial. Inability to acknowledge the truth. And the beginning of awakening is to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to deny the truth anymore. I have got to acknowledge, at least to myself, what the truth is. And of course the truth is only our own experience. It's not something out there. It's not something to bludgeon other people with or to coerce or control other people with. It's something to acknowledge to yourself in those quiet moments when you see what's actually in your mind. And just to say, yep, that's the nature of my mind. Really important to be able to begin to acknowledge our own truth. And in appropriate uh, circumstances and conditions to express that to others in a way that does not unnecessarily hurt them. Some years ago, before I went to Burma, I had been practicing for 10 or so years and doing retreats just like this. And uh, was approaching middle age and was quite happy and my business was finally uh, off and running and uh, was reaching some uh, what we call level of success. 
and uh, gee, life was really great. And then I did another retreat, and in the middle of that retreat, something came bubbling up that said, wait a minute, you're not that happy, you're not that content, there's still some level of discontent here, and what is it? And it wasn't that I needed a little more money, or that I needed a little more for a few more friends, or I needed a little more of this or that. It was that I didn't understand myself. I didn't know who I was. I was a success, except I didn't know who I was. And I decided that I had to go look a little closer. And retreats, 10-day retreats, weren't going to be enough. If it was going to take the rest of my life, I had to do it. And so I took a year and I told my friends the truth, that I wasn't happy. And I was going to do something about it. I was going to go to Asia and do my practice and, and try to discover and look a little more closely, a little more deeply into the nature of this discontent, nature of this life. And I had to separate from this woman that I was living with at the time. Separating from anybody isn't, isn't easy, but sometimes has to be done. After I'd been in Asia for some year, some months, not a year, she sent me this poem that she had found called The Journey. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company, as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And sometimes that's what acknowledging the truth feels like. Being patient, making a commitment to the truth, trust. Trusting yourself. Trusting that what you know right now is what you need to know right now. And acting with that knowledge, with that experience, with that, with some confidence in yourself and be willing to make mistakes. We're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna take a lot of wrong turns on the way. But trust yourself that you will recognize the wisdom and uh, uh, the skillfulness or the unskillfulness or the rightness or wrongness of each decision you make. Yes, have trust and faith in in teachers and uh, friends along the way and trust yourself. Learn to trust yourself. Absolutely essential. Practice has a way of unfolding, the path of awakening and and, uh, practice has a way of unfolding from one moment to the next. And as we successfully acknowledge and and get to this moment, the next one unfolds for us. And if we don't ever acknowledge this one, we never get to the next one. We can think about and plan and wonder, what am I supposed to do next? Am I supposed to go here? Am I supposed to do that? Take one step, the next step will appear. 
trust the process. Something got you here, something will take you from here. Don't have to know what the next ten steps are going to be, only have to know what the next step is going to be. And then you can adjust your path, your practice, your energy, your understanding after that step. When I went to Asia to become a monk, I didn't know I was going to disrobe. I didn't know I was going to stay a monk as long as I did. I thought I was going to be a year. Ended up being five. In the middle of which I thought, I'm going to be a monk for life. Well, not a monk anymore. Good thing I didn't stick to that one. <laughs> hey, you can only take one step at a time. And the next step will reveal itself. The next step that has to be taken will reveal itself to you. Trust yourself to be there, to know it, to recognize it, and to take the step, and to learn from it. Patience, commitment to the truth, trusting yourself, your own practice, your own understanding, perseverance. I don't think I need to mention much about perseverance, because you know it takes a lot. You have to be willing to do the same thing over and over and over and over and persevere and persevere and persevere in the face of intractable uh, dullness, sleepiness, boredom, uh, seduction by all sorts of pleasures, angry mind, whatever. Persevere means nothing other than to begin again. Come back to the present moment, start again. Persevere in being present. Keeping a beginner's mind, the mind that sees each moment fresh, seeing this moment as a new, fresh moment, this breath as a fresh breath, only to be breathed once. Did you get it, or catch it, or not? Persevering, coming back moment after moment after moment, no matter how many times you fall off the path. No matter how many times mindfulness leaves and goes somewhere else. Gandhi says, I know the path. It is straight and narrow. It is like the edge of a sword. I rejoice to walk on it. I weep when I slip. God's word is, he who strives, he or she who strives, never perishes. I have implicit faith in that promise. Though therefore from my weakness I fail a thousand times, I will, not, I will not lose faith. That's perseverance. And fifth, patience, commitment to the truth, trust yourself, perseverance. And fifthly, learning how to let go. Learning how to open to the unfamiliar, the unknown. How to be there for the unexpected. A friend of mine, Jack Engler, has uh, practiced uh, a lot and has, you know, is a Western psychologist and uh, has a, quite a good understanding of the path of practice. And he said that the path of practice is one long grieving process. Because you need to l- grieve the loss of everything you have known and experienced. To let go of everything who you think you are, who you hope you aren't. What you have known, what you have seen, what you have done, your plans, your memories, your fears, your joys, your sorrows. 
learning to let go of everything. It's painful to let go. It's more painful to hang on. These attitudes or these, uh, yeah, attitudes, these perspectives of your life are invaluable. And it's really helpful to, to just reflect on them occasionally and, and to cultivate them in your life. Patience, commitment to the truth, trusting, confidence in yourself, perseverance, let go. So even with all that, what about going home, the kids, the wife, the husband, you know, job tomorrow, got to go back to work. What, what, how, how, what am I going to do? I mean, uh, you know, my life is full and busy already, so how am I going to get any more mindful or any more aware? Where am I going to fit it in? <clears throat> as often as you have probably heard it said, and as well-intentioned as you probably have been when you've said it, I'm going to repeat it and remind you again. A commitment to a daily practice of sitting is essential. We've developed a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of understanding here. All it takes is a little bit of sitting each day to keep the thread going. And when you stop sitting, for a couple of days, the thread gets really weak. If you stop sitting for a week or a month, it's gone. But a little bit of sitting, a little bit of conscious, determined mindfulness each day. It doesn't have to be 45 minutes. It can be 10. 10 minutes, 20 minutes in the morning or in the evening. And don't expect it to be blissful like these retreats, these sittings have been. <laughs> It might not be. It might be just slogging through sleepiness or restlessness or just physical exhaustion or whatever. That's all right. That's all right. It's still, still you're making the effort. You set your mind on a course of being, de being determined to be mindful and that's what's important, acting on that. It wasn't until I made a commitment to daily practice and this was after about eight years of uh, just doing retreats thinking that that was enough. Well, it's not. It is. It's good. It's, you know, retreats are really wonderful. And then I finally got around to being able to make a commitment to myself that I was going to sit every morning before, just after I got up. And it's terrible. You know, try sitting after you just get up in the middle of winter. Yuck. You know, it's just sleepy and it's cold and it's uh, quiet and, oh, boy, it's awful. You know, the body's stiff and the mind is stiffer. And, uh, but something happens. Something happens. And nothing Nothing happens very special in any one sitting. It's just, you know, get through because, you know, you're hungry and you've got to go to work. But you come to know yourself in a way that is really, it's really significant. Even though it's just battling sleep the whole time. You find these spaces in the mind. You just, you know, your mind goes to these many uh, unfamiliar spaces and places and mental terrain that... We're just not aware of. We're just not tuned into. And it's really helpful to, to check them out. 
know yourself a whole lot better. So a commitment to daily practice. It's important also to to not um, burden yourself with it. Most of us say, all right, if I got time, I'll sit. You know, if I get everything else done that's got to be done, then I'll sit before I go to bed. But at some point, promise yourself that you'll schedule the sitting first and then let the rest of the stuff fill in as there is time. And then your practice takes on a whole, uh, goes in, in a whole different direction, a whole new dimension of commitment to practice. When you schedule the sitting first, and then if you get time, a little social life, a little work, a little whatever else has got to be done. It sounds funny, you know, we think, my life is so full, how am I ever going to find 40 minutes? I haven't got 45 minutes a day to sit. But a funny thing happens. When you sit, you clear out your mind, you get a little clear, you get a little focused, a little concentrated. And what you have to do, you can do much more efficiently, thereby saving yourself time. Sit for 45 minutes, get a couple of hours extra in your day. Because the work that you have to do, you can get done more efficiently. And you can decide more clearly, this has to be done, this doesn't have to be done. This is a useful thing to do, that's a useless thing to do. And so we get a lot more discriminating in how we spend our time, not frittering it away out of some sort of obsessive restlessness. Clarity of mind is a wonderful thing. In and of itself, it's freedom. So, time is going on, and I haven't even started yet. (laughs) The Buddha, in his uh, teaching of people, in his talking to people uh, when he was alive, he uh, laid out a path of practice, a path of practice that would lead Anyone who walked on that path, it would lead them to understanding, liberation, freedom. And his path of practice has three main, three trainings, three uh, different practices. And the first is a training in uh, virtuous living. And it's what we do here, it's taking the precepts. Living carefully in relationship to others, where you don't abuse others uh, physically without harming other creatures or beings, where you don't take things that don't belong to you, and in our day and age, where you live with a minimum impact on the earth, not using more resources than is uh, necessary so that other beings also have the uh, necessary resources for their life. speaking truthfully, speaking uh, in a way that what you say is useful and beneficial to others, speaking to create harmony and agreement rather than disagreement and disharmony, saying nice things about people rather than just gossiping. It's easy to, to criticize, you know, and to talk about somebody behind their back. It's very difficult to tell someone how much you appreciate them and like them and appreciate what they do. It's just speaking. Very important, though, to live, to 
to live uh, consciously and virtuously so that we create harmony amongst ourselves. Also, to, to recognize these areas of life which are particularly problematic in that they cause us all a lot of uh, unhappiness, particularly around uh, killing and stealing and uh, speaking, uh, our sexual energy, and the use of intoxicants. And all of us have had lots of experience with all of these things. And all of us have had lots of unhappy moments, difficult uh, times with these experiences and these areas of our life. And it doesn't take too much reflection to uh, drop back and say, hey, you know, that's not such a skillful thing to do. And maybe I can be a little more careful with my life and it will influence and affect others around me. You don't have to get heavy-handed and moralistic and uh, preach to yourself and uh, others, but just reflect on your own behavior and how it impacts others. The happiness that comes from that type of practice, that uh, living virtuously, living harmoniously, is a happiness that we all want. We want to know how to live in harmony with others. Just think, if we were living in harmony, how happy we would be. It's a happiness we all want, and it's free. So, that's the first uh, teaching, training of the Buddha. The second is developing the mind through concentration and stillness. And as you know, our minds are restless monkeys and uh, very agitated. And uh, the second part of the Buddha's teaching and training is to learn how to tranquilize the mind. Learn how to calm down a little bit. How not to be so volatile and so reactive. And practicing meditation uh, calms the mind down frees the mind from its uh, restless, agitated uh, anxiety. And there's many different types of meditation, uh, loving-kindness meditation and mantras and uh, even some of the, the physical things, you know, Tai Chi and, and Hatha Yoga can be very meditative and do a lot to calm the mind down. Very helpful thing to do. The third part of the Buddha's teaching and training is to develop wisdom. And wisdom, as I've talked about, can be read in books and through teachers and taught, but primarily through your own understanding of doing uh, insight meditation to free the mind from its wrong understanding. Practically speaking, one way to do it, one way to bring awareness and mindfulness into your life is to just take your day and look and say, in this hour, what do I do? In this next hour, what do I do? In this next hour, what do I do? And there's time at home, there's time at work, there's time with, uh, with friends, and there's time alone. In each one of them, you can look and see how you can bring mindfulness and awareness into that part of your life. I like to tell the story of the time I was living in a household where there was a cat. I had, uh, 
we might say, never been a great fan of cats. And uh, it just so happened in this household, I was the first one up in the morning. Well, this cat, we used to put it out at night. In the morning, as soon as it heard the first person up in the house, it was at the door. And you know how cats are at the door? They're uh, merciless. They're relentless. Uh, they just want to fill their belly, like most of us. And uh, so I'd get up to do my own breakfast, and there was the cat crashing against the door, hurting itself. It was my responsibility to let it in and feed it. And so that required that I get the cat's bowl with the old food in it, <laughs> scrape it out, wash out the bowl, open another can of cat food, that wonderful smell that comes out of cat food, you know, 5.30 in the morning, put it in its bowl, mix up a little this and that, get the water bowl, put the water, put it down on the floor. All the while, the cat is underfoot. Huh? You know, it's just rubbing and rubbing. and it's just, it's just, You can't take a step without stepping on it and tripping. Well, it was a frustrating uh, obligation for a while. And then I said, hey, wait a minute. This is just getting my day off to the wrong start every day. And not only in the morning, I was the first one home from work in the afternoon. <laughs> first thing you do, you walk in the house, there's the cat. Don't even have time to sit down and rest, you know. There's the cat. Second, twice a day, practice. It only takes five minutes, but you can bring a tremendous amount of mindfulness into something like that. Some habitual obligation can become a key to awakening. Everybody here brush your teeth? 30 or 40 years of brushing your teeth once a day, twice a day, maybe three times a day? Did you ever consider making it a meditation? Brushing your teeth takes what? A minute? Two? If you're quick? Five if you're really diligent? Uh, flossing? And all that? You know? There's movements. All it is is movements. Standing there, smelling, tasting, moving, feeling, standing, spitting, rinsing. Great meditation. You don't even have to make time. You do it every day anyway. Anybody here stand in line to go to the bank, to check out your groceries, go to the movies? Anybody who doesn't stand in a line? Did you ever consider doing standing meditation? It's easy. You just note the sensations of standing. What do your feet feel like on the ground? It's so easy. I don't even need to tell you. It's so obvious. It's easy to bring mindfulness into your daily life. What's difficult is to remember to do it. If you could remember, if you had a little thing that's sitting on the shoulder that said, remember to be mindful here, it'd be easy. It's easy to be mindful. You just tune in. Ah, yeah, right. Relax. Check it out. What does it feel like? Okay. But we don't have that little thing sitting there saying, hey, remember? Remember? Wake up. Wake up. But in time, we just take one thing at a time. Just cultivate one of these things for a month. Brushing your teeth for a month. Put a little sign on your mirror, you know, where you brush your teeth, you know. Be mindful of toothbrushing, you know. And then uh, where you keep the cat food, huh? you put a little sign that says, you know, feeding the cat is a key to uh, enlightenment. <laughs> it is. And, you know, you, you don't have to put it where everybody who comes into your house is going to see it. You know, it can be inside the cabinet door, you know, inside the medicine cabinet door or whatever. It doesn't have to be. You know, people might think you're funny trying to be mindful. Lots of ways. Did you ever consider being mindful while you're driving to work? Or driving home from work? 
what a frustrating task that is. Stop and go, traffic, and everybody's in a hurry, and, and they're cutting you off. They just, ah! It's a mindful, I mean, you can be mindful. It's a physical, mental activity. Turn the radio off, unplug. You've got a 40-minute drive to get home, or a 20-minute drive to get home, or to get to work. Make it a mindful meditation. It can be done. You don't close your eyes and watch your breath, but it's just be in touch with what's actually happening. Hands on the steering wheel, feet on the pedal. What's the steering wheel actually feel like? What's it feel like to shift? You got a clutch, uh, you got an uh, automatic or a standard, you got to use your feet. You can feel the movement of the legs, the feet movement, see the traffic going by. Just being present of what's already happening doesn't take any more time get to work and feel like you just got up from a good meditation. Wouldn't that be nice? Do your meditation on the way home so you can enjoy home life when you get there. I make it sound so easy. You should see my life. <laughs>